Welcome to Learning by Design, a professional development podcast for the faculty of Bay State College. I'm James Grenier from the Office of Instructional Design and the Virtual Center for Teaching and Learning. Join us each episode as we discuss the tips, tools, and techniques of education online and face-to-face in a changing world. And today our guest is Peter Shea, who is the author of a brand new book on digital learning with Peggy Mackey, which we're going to hear about, and is also the Director of Professional Development at Middlesex Community College. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, James. And I'll just clarify, I'm actually the co-editor. I did actually write co- co-write two chapters, but in terms of the overall book, my role would be that of the co-editor. Well, now let's talk about this because I'd be like full disclosure for everyone here at the college. You invited me to be a part of a, a book chapter that we wrote for Peggy's last book. Right, right, right. Um, which was real-time assessment. Assessment is a big thing we're going to do here at Bay State over the next year or so. We're building that culture of assessment. Tell us about this book that you've written with Peggy, which is uh, Transforming Digital Learning and Assessment, or that you've co-edited, excuse me. Tell us about that process and what the book is and where you're going with it. Well, it, it, was, it's, it was an attempt to look at some case studies that give a, um, a snapshot of where we are in terms of teaching and assessment using technology. I mean, people have been experimenting for several years, and some of those experiments have been quite fruitful. And we wanted to get some of the people who were doing interesting work to come together and write up their work and then bring it together in a single book so that the reader of the book could get a real good sense of where educational technology for learning and assessment is and where it's probably going to be going in the next couple of years. And in a sense, it builds on the legacy that was established by real-time assessment. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is we're talking about where things are going in the next few years. Now, prior to the pandemic, one of the things that you and, and I and some other people in roles, similar others have been trying to do is to try to get that conversion over to technology. And all of a sudden, everyone was teaching online. And I think we both had the similar conversations with faculty in the, in the spring of 2020, which is you're really not teaching online right now. What you're doing is emergency remote instruction. To throw something on Zoom is not teaching online in the same way that the thoughtful process of designing lessons. We talked about backwards design. So you start with your learning outcomes. What is it the student's going to be able to show you they can do at the end of the course, at the end of the unit, at the end of the module, whatever piece you're doing? And then the next part is we design the assessment, right? How are they going to show us they can do the thing that we've asked them to learn? And then we bridge it with the pedagogy, right? Right. But now that we've had to take people and move them almost exclusively online in many cases, and I know different colleges are opening up or partially opening up this, this summer and this fall, but this has made a paradigm shift, not to sound you know, cliched about it, where we have to do these things. So in editing this book and reading all the many chapters that, that are there with different people, are there any themes or overall trends that you're seeing that we should be aware of as we go forward? Oh, yeah, most definitely. I think one thing that we're seeing is that when we teach online, we capture data that we, we would have been impossible to capture in a face-to-face classroom. Um, but we've been capturing it, but we haven't been really looking at it because it wasn't part of our existing paradigm. It was just there. Um, we are slowly coming around to a point when we recognize that there is a lot of data there that might yield us insights into how students learn or the obstacles to the learning, which if we look at it and, and, and review it, might give us um, clear strategic plans in regards to how to make the learning experience more rich for students. And um, I think, you know, it, 
school, um, colleges, as you know, change very slowly. And we've been using this technology for now 20 years. Um, but again, we've been very cautious and a large cohort of our instructors um, have used it um, creatively while others have been resistant to it. But as you pointed out, um, last year was the game changer. It was really the break from the past. Um, I think of it much like World War One. Uh, up until the beginning of World War One, much of the world behaved like they had in the 19th century. And then World War One created this really break. And that's really when the 20th century that we knew really began. I think something similar is happening with the age of COVID. We're finally getting a break from that late 20th century model of, um, of digital uh, online learning and, and beginning to see um, a much different picture now that literally everyone was forced to, to um, jump into the boat. Um, and at your other point that what we were doing last spring was not true online. And that's uh, an absolutely important thing to keep in mind. Um, the metaphor I've used is imagine you had a friend who'd be trying to introduce to Italian food and they keep putting it off and putting it off. And then one day they come to you and says, well, I tried that Italian food you're always pushing and it's terrible. I said, what do you mean it's terrible? Oh yeah, I opened a can of um, Chef Boyardee and I just, it was awful. And, I, and that's, what we, that's, what, <laughs> that's what we had last year. It was the Chef Boyardee of, of instruction. It wasn't the real thing. And the important thing is for people who um, had, if that was their first um, experience, for them to understand that that's not really what it's normally like. It's, that was the way it was in a emergency situation. Um, uh, it was basically meatball surgery, putting together cars online. But now that they're there and they develop skills they had before, now is the time to really start slowly experimenting, getting creative and appreciating the things that we can do in these spaces. And I, so I think there's enormous potential as long as we don't um, experience uh, what I call um, a digital counter-reformation with a lot of faculty running back into the traditional classroom and, and staying away from technology as much as possible. That's the one thing that concerns me, but otherwise I'm hopeful about the potential. Yeah, and you know, I think you, you brought up a very good point there. You know, what can we do in these spaces? So, and as a matter of fact, you and I were involved with the Second Life Project way back in, I don't know how to say how many years ago that was now, but I remember we had a conversation with the Dean, Michael Bertolato, when we first met and we were talking about what can you do in this space that's different than the face-to-face? -face? Because right. they both have their strength. And, and I think that as much of an online advocate for, or advocate for online learning that you and I have both been over the years, um, we realize that there are some classes that don't work well online. There are some students where the online just doesn't work as well as it does for other students. So it depends on the class, the discipline, the student, the teacher even. It's not a panacea. It doesn't fix everything, which was part of the problem. So I think we are going to see a little bit of a, I don't want to say falling back, but there's going to be, you know, in the, to use your analogy with the World War I, right? In the trench warfare that education had become during COVID, I think what we're, one of the things we're going to see is how do we make, strike the balance between what does work really well online, what things we have to do online for practical reasons, whether it, it's ideal or not, and then what things we're still going to do so that when we meet face-to-face, -face, it's intentional. And I think that's helping the teaching in general as well, because if you say, well, I've got, a hybrid model, which is a lot of what we're doing here at Bay State now is a hybrid model. We're moving as much as we can online, but there will be some face-to-face -face components. And so we're a little more intentional about what we do face-to-face, -face, right? 
there are some things that work really well there and we need to have that. And not just labs, of course we think of lab. So if you're teaching something like, um, we've got a great nursing program and a physical therapy assistant program, those, you can imagine those labs need to be done face-to-face. But then the question is like, what other areas work better face-to-face and what work online, you know? And that's, that's the question. How are we gonna find that balance or that ideal percentage of each in higher ed for different schools? Yeah, I definitely think, I think that um, the immediate future will be hybrid and high flex. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, I, I think we've, we've finally emerged into this model where we're no longer looking at them as binary opposites, but we're seeing a fusion. Um, think of it as cyborg education. Uh, well, with Elon Musk and his Neuralink, you know, that could, that could be literally something that happens. Yeah, that, right, that literally could be. I mean, it's... it's <laughs> What was science fiction five minutes ago is, is today's latest Amazon offering. Um, yeah, and I got to tell you, as a science fiction writer, that's really getting annoying because it's, <laughs> it's getting to the you're point. Running a, you're I running wrote a, this really cool story and it's passe, you know, before I get it published. It's really... <laughs> well, that's been part of the problem. I mean, the future arrives much more quickly than it did in the past. And, uh, and that's very um, uh, disconcerting to, to many people, including those of us who think of ourselves as the kind of people who embrace future trends, even for futurists, it's getting to be a little exhausting. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I wouldn't hit, I wouldn't mind a pause button on certain things, but it's arriving. Um, and I think there are so many forces that are converging on us. One of them is the fact that um, people need new skills. They need, uh, they need to reskill quickly. They need to be more adaptable. And one of the biggest problems facing traditional higher ed is that we're not very good at that. We're not very, we don't like quick changes. The problem is the people that we turn to as our clients are expecting that more. I mean, you're gonna, I think you're gonna see more micro courses. I don't think you're gonna, I think you're gonna see a move away from the 16 week courses. 16 weeks for many people is too long. I think we need to do less, but better. Um, I mean, but instead of giving ourselves an extravagant amount of four months, find better ways to make use of two months um, or even five weeks to do something and make certain that people have the capabilities they need before they move on. So um, I see that model emerging in some schools, but uh, most importantly, I see it emerging in those places that are gonna um, arrive as the competitors to traditional higher education, um, the course providers. Um, you know, James, one of the things that you and I face, as you pointed out, is that we, we step into the future early. And so we see the early trends like virtual worlds. Um, and that's coming, making a comeback. People are seeing virtual worlds 2.0 is not having application in workforce training. So there's much more energy in that space. And the technology, of course, has gotten better. And there are things that you can do in those spaces that you can't do in a face-to-face course. For example, if you wanted to collaborate on a virtual theater production, with a school in another country. You can do that in a virtual space. You, it's hard to do that in a Zoom space, but in a virtual space, um, assuming the avatars are relatively easy to manipulate, um, you can have a really interesting experience, which you could obviously not do when you're geographically bound to one space. So I think there's a lot of potential there for experimentation. Um, but I, you know, I also think that um, you know, there's, there's, there's this rush over fewer and fewer students. And the question is, if people need more and more learning, why there are fewer and fewer students? And I think it's partly because people are 
their, their belief in the value of a baccalaureate degree to get them to where they want to go is beginning to diminish. That combined with the prohibitive costs of the degrees and the places that come up with solutions to that are the ones that are going to really own the future. I mean, we saw that. You saw, we saw what happened in the business world with Amazon. And it's the conceit of higher education that they are somehow immune to those kind of forces. I think they're really good at holding them off for a period of time, but sooner or later their walls will come down. And I, I'd rather see them adapt and prepare for it rather than simply, you know, refuse to acknowledge what's happening. Then we talk about the modality, right? We're not even talking about the subject. I mean, academic standards and rigor actually if you plan it ahead of time, can be greater in some instances when we have this blending between the, the online and the face-to-face -face because you are asking students to take more control over their own learning, you know, and they're supported. And we've used the phrase, no longer the stage on the stage, but the guide on the side. But the truth is you have to be able to do both. You have to be the expert as much as you can, and you also have to be able to, to find different ways to guide the students through. In a way, it's very positive because it does make students more responsible for their own learning. So when you talk about micro courses, but even like just even micro learning within a course. So where can we, uh, where can we target the learning? You know, where can we have a well-crafted, well-delivered lecture is an art form. It really is. Mm -hmm. I hate when people say, well, don't lecture to me or the lecture is dead. You know, it's like, <laughs> no, it really isn't. I mean, the, there it's needed, but how we target that, how we do it, what other ways do we reach students and have them digest the materials they need and to, to apply those materials. Like, how do we do that beyond it? So the lecture, the problem with the lecture is it's overused. Right, exactly. I, I agree with you. I mean, and the demand for lectures isn't going on. I mean, if you go on to um, LinkedIn Learning or Masterclass, you, you see people paying for lectures. They expect that they want it. But the thing of it is, it can't, the learning experience cannot entirely be lecture, but it cannot be lecture-centered. The lecture should be one component of it yeah, and it, and it should be focused and it should not be someone extemporizing for 30 minutes. I mean, you're right. It's a, it's a skill. Not anyone can do it. The problem is the way we use it, it's not very effective for impacting long-term long learning. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is where an area where, again, that the current trend is actually helping us better, right? Because if you're recording a lecture, you're stopping and thinking about what you're saying rather than, oh, I have to show up twice a week and just show up and speak. Corporate trainers have had to make the same sort of change. You know, used to call it the show up and throw up. You know, don't do that. Um, as gross as that sounds, we used to have lectures. You know, at one point, if you were a lecturer in a class, you'd have a typical lecture that you gave, and you'd vary it, you'd change your notes, and you'd, but you, you'd, you'd hone that, which is good. But now you're saying, well, now I'm going to record the thing, and whether it's a video or whether it's a podcast, like we're doing here. Uh, where it's just audio, whatever that is, we're being more intentional about what we do. Right. Uh, in some cases, scripting them out. I did a series of webinars earlier this year and they were originally scripted out. And then I found out that while most of the faculty did appreciate the 15 or 20 minute opening where I would bring up the topic, it was the conversations that we had that worked better. And we learned when that works and when it doesn't. So one of the things that we're doing here now with the training is we'll do these podcasts, of course, but also I will record a video with a slide or something and cover the concept, uh, whether it's micro learning or some kind of assessment module. 
and then actually use it as a flipped classroom and just offer it. And then we have these conversations where we open up teams and we say, okay, now that you've seen the lecture, what do you think? And facilitate a conversation. I'm hopeful that that's going to also continue to, to be done more with students as well. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think that, you know, one of the things I think that's going to change what we do, going back to our point about analytics, is if we start collecting more interesting data and we begin to actually see what we do that has an impact and what doesn't, I think we'll make a really significant change because a lot of what we do in education is, 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 is faith-based. We believe it's going to have value and therefore we do it, but we don't really measure it. We don't, we don't try to measure it. We just kind of hope that, you know, if I give a really good lecture, the students aren't asleep, then I've somehow impacted their learning. I don't know that. Um, but if I give them some sort of challenge and I see a change and the only variable that I can, uh, that I can attest to that change that I'm aware of is, is the lecture, then, then I've got some evidence that maybe the lecture was useful. And for me, that's, been, that's something I've been wanting for a long time. I'm tired of doing things and wondering whether or not they're really helpful. I don't want to come to the end of it all and realize that um, what I did was well-intentioned but ineffectual. You know, I, you know, I remember several years ago um, attending a, a talk, a debate about the, the value of the lecture um, between two um, distinguished academics. And I'll never forget the defensiveness of one, the, an older professor who said, no, 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 no. I'm not blaming the students. If the students don't, haven't learned because of my lecture, it was my fault. I, I needed a better lecture. And I'm thinking to myself, no, you need to do other things. But I also realized that this man was, it, it would have been very difficult for him to really absorb the idea that what he'd been doing for 40 years was probably not doing much good. I mean, as a standalone lecturer, mm -hmm. without incorporating other things. Um, and, I, that was, and I can understand how, how you don't want to hear that after you're at, the, at the close of your career. Mm. Um, but we have to understand that while the lecture does have a role and it's not going away, just have to evolve and it has to take its place alongside other things, including things like problem-based learning, mm -hmm. simulations, um, case studies review. I mean, there are, we know so much now about what helps people learn. Um, the big problem is we have, not we have not come to a point in our culture where we have put it into practice mm -hmm. for various reasons. And my concern is that if we don't do it, somebody else will. And they'll get better and better. And suddenly there'll be a product that replaces what we do. And our faith is that the people always want the four-year residential college or whatever college model. Colleges exist to feed a function. If something else emerges to feed that function, colleges will be obsolete. If you had told most people 30 years ago that bookstores would begin to vanish because people were buying them online, they wouldn't have believed you because not only did they want the books, they cherished the bookstore experience of browsing, of looking through stacks, of wandering around. And to them, that would have seemed an absolutely necessary part of book buying, but now it isn't. And you know what's interesting? So there, there was a resurgence in 2019 in where independent bookstores did start to get numbers. They started to build their traction back up. And then COVID happened. 
So there's sometimes where, as you said, competitors will bring in an option or people's choices of how they participate in these things changes. And then there are outside factors that are just going to happen too. So um, I want to talk about the assessment side of it, but something else you said reminded me too, that there is a value added to a great lecture. Let's say there's a textbook. The author said, A, I agree with Dr. So-and-so on A, but let me bring another viewpoint in. There's that, I'm a subject matter expert. Let me bring in additional knowledge that they're only going to get in that course because it's that faculty member, which also, by the way, um, when you increase your ability, you're being known as an expert, you're increasing the engagement with students in general because they're like, well, I, I want to study with this professor. This person knows. It's not just personality, although that's a factor too, I'm sure. There's that side of it. But when we talk about assessment, you're bringing up a couple of really good points there or data. Let's start with that if we can. What kind of data can we get that you've seen with working with this book and the authors you have that they collect from, from some of these activities online? Are they linking assessments, for example, as a way of learning with materials that are more traditional like a lecture or reading? Uh, are, they, are they using them in, in some way for recall? Or what, what are you seeing? If, I'm seeing, yeah, I'm seeing a hybrid. I'm seeing people take traditional media and link them to assessment tools. Um, for example, um, supposing you have a text that you open up and the first thing is a quiz uh, or some sort of assessment mm -hmm. before you've even begun. Now, for many people, that's not their experience. They don't get assessed until they've begun studying. But assessing what you, your prior knowledge is an important step in learning. As an instructor, I wanna know what skills and knowledge my students bring to the experience already. Um, so, and I think um, what you're seeing more are spaced quizzes where again, you, that you can build a, a quizzing experience into the reading and it can be a, serve as a reinforcer. You're not necessarily trying to see new, light, uh, new knowledge, but you're trying to get um, the learner to think about what they've just read. So you interrupt the passivity of the experience by giving them something to do. And I think more and more assessment can be used creatively in that way. We have a tool called Edpuzzle that, that was integrated in Canvas where you can do a lecture. Let's say you're, you have a video either that you've created or that you've pulled off of a service somewhere where you can insert questions. It'll say, you know, as you're going through, say you're watching a TED Talk and the person explains, you know, they're talking about... Um, neurodiversity, for example, and they list a type of neurodiversity, you can stop it and it asks the question, okay, what did the author just say? So we're forcing a recall immediately. We're asking them to, to be involved with active testing while they're going through. And the nice thing about that particular product is it actually stores the data too. So you can see if they answered it, what they answered, how they went through. So it does, as you said, breaks up the passivity and they're stopping and thinking about it. That's one way to do it. Another thing, obviously, is flipping the classroom. So you're watching a video before class. You might ask, you might put a quick assignment in there where they answer a short reflection. On 100 words, what was, the mo what was the muddiest point of this assignment? Be ready to discuss it when we meet on Thursday. Or what are the three most important topics that the author explained in this section or whatever the, whatever the thing is? So I guess the faculty member look at that data. You look at that and you, you say, how are students interacting? Look from a qualitative side. How can you adjust that or make an assessment out of that? Any ideas? Well, 
I think it goes to professional development. I think there have to be more work with faculty around data literacy. I think it's, it's foolish to assume that faculty already know how to do these things. Um, and we saw this earlier to some degree with the assessment work. Faculty are trained traditionally to be subject matter experts. Not, um, they're not trained formally in assessment design. Mm. So when we're doing assessment initiatives over the past decade, we realized the gaps in our faculty knowledge and we brought in experts to help them design um, assessment work and to extrapolate the best insights from the assessment work. Um, I think we'll do something similar going into the near future with data. Uh, assessment and analytics are not identical, but they are related. Um, and as with assessment, I think we need to do some professional development around that um, and, and, and get faculty in a place where they're, they're learning certain terminologies, they're understanding certain graphs, they're, they're learning how to frame a question and how to extract a question. Um, it wouldn't be a bad idea, um, and obviously some schools are already doing it, is if faculty start a semester in a course with a question for themselves. For example, in writing class, how many of my, how quickly do my students grasp the, the ability to organize text in a logical manner? How long does it take them on average from assuming they know very little at the beginning of the course to the end of the course? Is it a concept they grasp quickly? Um, some concepts are easier than others. And again, faculty um, work under the burden of the expert's curse. It's been a long time since they were novices, so they don't always know where the pain points will be. So they may not be providing as much resources or effort towards a particular learning objective as they need to because they're simply not aware. So I think, I think education's at a point very much like where medicine was in the 19th century, the early 19th century, where science and technology were suddenly giving them uh, diagnostic tools um, that they've never had before. And it opened up entirely new vistas for the profession. So I think it's a very exciting time to be in. But I, I would definitely agree, you can't simply throw software at people that we learned years ago. You have to start back and say, what are the core competencies? And one of them is understanding what we mean by data, how to extract data, how to maintain data, data integrity, how to use data, how to frame questions. And again, unless faculty are teaching in an area where data analysis is a common task, they're likely not to have that kind of expertise. And so they need to be, they need training and they need communities of practice which, where they can grow together. Yeah, and I think that really bears repeating, right? There's the training and then there's the, the reinforcement working with colleagues. Right, right. You know, communities of practice, that's very important. And it's harder to do these days. And that's an area where like a virtual center for teaching and learning or something like that adds that ability to have these conversations where it is a community of practice. And I, I also love that you brought up something I think also very important. You're talking about keeping it focused to one thing at a time. We're, we're all trying to do too much. When we first started doing universal design, for example, and we said, okay, universal design for learning, there's certain ways to design it. How can we add to this? So you've done a video, that's great. Can you also provide a transcript? That's a plus one. Could you also maybe include closed captioning? But by the way, that closed captioning has to be turned off because some people need have an issue where they need to turn it off. That's a plus one. So maybe very specifically ask that question of yourself as an instructor. Because I think when we teach a class, we learn as much as the students do. They might be learning about a new subject, but we're learning about how we teach better. We're learning how they learn. So maybe the thing to do is ask that question. Okay, I'm teaching writing. 
uh, or I'm teaching a component of writing, how often, if I'm teaching composition, do students understand this concept by the end of the course? And how do I do that? Maybe a course autopsy is as unappealing as the term sounds. You know, look back at the end. What's this one thing I did, this term, that made sense? What one object or outcome did, and how did I meet that? And how did I not meet that, you know, to look at it? And how, how can we make that work? Yeah, and of course the question, the eternal question also is, how do we do all this work in an era of diminishing resources and time? Yeah, and that again is really key, right? Because you also mentioned the fact that faculty have to be subject matter experts, then they have to be teaching experts and learning design experts, and now assessment experts and data experts, and in the last year, trauma-informed education experts. I mean, like they have to know everything. So maybe, maybe the thing to do is to be a little, try to be a little kinder with ourselves to slow down, as you said, focus on one thing at a time when we can and build up each skill. And again, to, to reach out to colleagues, you know, to build those communities of practice, to help solve each other's problems when at all possible, because uh, there are the same challenges with our students. And the ultimate goal is to help our students. And I always say that we are in the, we are in the greatest industry, I think, uh, of all time because we help people to become the people they're gonna be. And faculty are some of the best and dedicated people, but we are still human beings. We're still people, we have limits too. So together we're all smarter than any one of us is individually. So maybe that's part of the lesson, I don't know. Well, thanks, Pierre. I really appreciate you being here and having, you know, being part of this conversation as you have been on the forefront as a thought leader, frankly. Tell us one more time about your book. Um, that you co-edited with Peggy Mackey, who is uh, the guru for the assessment, has been for several years. Yeah, um, the book is entitled, uh, it's from Stylus, educational publisher. It's entitled Transforming Digital Learning and Assessment, A Guide to Available and Emerging Practices and in Building Institutional Consensus. Okay. And yeah, I'll, I'll put a link for that in our supplementary materials. I'm going to try to do that with the podcast as we go someone has additional resources and in touch so that I can share with our faculty too. If you're doing uh, conferences or speaking about this or there are other resources that you want to share, please let us know. I'd be happy to let you know, James. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us on Learning by Design. Tune in next time for more. If you have questions about online design, teaching, or educational technology, feel free to reach out to us at the Virtual Center for Teaching and Learning in Canvas.